Amen. I want to start off reading from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 55, and I ask you guys if you'd stand with me and honor God's word. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Maple Grove, I'm convinced, and I stand on the authority of the Word of God, that God's Word is going to rain down from heaven this morning, and that God has purposes that He wants this Word to accomplish, and that God's Word will not return empty this morning, that God's Word will accomplish everything that God desires it to accomplish. And check out what it says next. See, here, here's a result. Uh, the result of God's word accomplishing the things that God wants it to accomplish. Isaiah says this, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you. And, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. In, instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. And instead of briars, uh, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the... Lord's renown for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. I'm convinced that God's word is going to rain down today in a huge and powerful way, that, that, it, that it's going to make a difference, and it's not for my renown, it's not for Maple Grove's renown, but it's for the Lord's renown that God's word will rain down into our lives today. And if we're here today open and willing to receive from God, something huge and awesome can happen because God's word is so incredibly powerful. God spoke, and that which was not became as if it has always been. Anybody out there believe that God can speak to us this morning? You believe that can happen? You ready to receive from God today? All right. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we love you so much, and God, we just ask this morning that your word will rain down. And God, we ask that your word will accomplish not our purpose, not our agenda, but your purpose, your agenda. And God, I pray that because what happens in here, that your renown will spread from this place out into the world. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. In the beginning, in chapter one of the story, God created everything. Galaxies, stars, planets, moons, mountains, oceans, rivers, streams, birds, fish, thundering volcanoes, towering redwoods, all as a backdrop for his greatest desire, for his greatest passion. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I understand the reason behind everything, the reason behind all of creation is God's desire to have a relationship with and to do life with his people, to do life with you and with me. Now, it all started in a garden paradise, a perfect environment where God could walk and talk and enjoy an intimate relationship with the people he created. He made everything available to them except one thing, and they chose one thing that was forbidden, forever banishing themselves and us from God's presence. So God took another approach to doing life with his people. He created a nation through which he would reveal himself. And after preserving that people 
during a famine and delivering them from slavery in a foreign land by unleashing his unlimited power on the Egyptian empire, God was ready to lead his people into a new land, the promised land. A a land, uh, if you will, that was garden-like, a land that was flowing with milk and honey. Uh, A land where, where God would build a nation which would reveal his presence, his power, and his plan to bring all people once again into a relationship with him. A, a land where, where God would, would no longer interact, no longer only interact with certain individuals or talk with certain people, but where God would begin to do life with the entire nation because they now had a, a standard to follow. Uh, the law of the Ten Commandments. They now had a place where where God's presence could dwell, the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. And they now had a a, a means by which they, a a sinful people, could approach a holy God. Uh, The blood of a blameless, spotless lamb, an innocent sacrifice, their substitute, taking the punishment upon them. You see, God was leading his people a cloud by day, a, a fire by night, to a new and better land. A, a land that they, they stood on the very edge of entering only about a year after Egyptian captivity. But because they lacked the faith to go in and take possession of it, they were forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Now understand, God was leading his people to a land, to a new land, to a land, but they could not go into that land yet because they were not there yet. Because they were not yet the people that God needed them to be. They were, they were not yet workers, they were whiners. You see, God needed them to, to be a people who were content. He needed them to be a people who would trust in and depend on God. He needed them to, to be a people that was different than the world around them. He needed them to be a people that were obedient to his laws and commands and devoted to God above all things. Maple Grove, remember that, that being God's people was never about geography. Instead, it was always about becoming a people who would reveal, reflect, and display God's person, power, and purposes throughout the world. And remember also that God's intent has always been to shape the lives of his people in such a way that they point the people of this world to the incredible sweetness of being in a relationship with him. God wants the world to look at me and to look at you, to look at our lives, to look at the way we live our lives, the kind of husbands we are, the kind of wives and children and parents and community members and, and workers. God wants people to look at our lives and, and have those lives point to the incredible sweetness of what it's like. Oh, that's what you live like when you're in a relationship with the sovereign king of the universe. Remember, as we said last week, what the, what the world needs to see is what? Real thing. They need to see the real thing. God wants you and I to be the real thing so that We'll see who God is and be drawn to him and, and be made right with him. Maple Grove, welcome to chapter 7 of the story. A 31-week journey that will take us uh, through the bulk of the year 2013, you know, from January to September. 
a, a journey where we are, we're using this book right here as our guide. Uh, the book, The Story, it's 31 chapters full of Scripture written in chronological order, written in a, a narrative form to tell the story, to help you and I understand the big story of the Bible. And, and like I said, when we, we started out on this journey on, on January 13th of this year, if we really lean into the story during the next 31 weeks, we will have a comprehensive, big-picture understanding of the Bible like never before, an understanding that will serve us well in life and in this pursuit to become the people God created us to be. Now, chapter 7 of the story opens up this way. It's Joshua chapter 1. It's page 89 of the story. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord... The Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses' aid, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then you, all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give to them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and, and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Be strong and courageous. Because you will lead these people to inherit the land. I swore to their ancestors to give them. Be strong and very courageous. Now be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So Joshua ordered the officers of the people, go through the camp and tell the people, get your provisions ready. Three days from now, you will cross the Jordan here to go in and take possession of the land the Lord your God is giving you for your very own. Chapter 7 of the story, and by the way, who read chapter 7 this week, preparing for the day? All right, we're doing very well on that, doing your homework. And next week, we will do chapter, wow, you guys are sharp, right? Very sharp, okay? In chapter 7 of the story, it's the book of Joshua, 24 chapters, 658 verses, 19,000 words. It covers a period of about 27 years. When the book opens up, God's people are on the east side of the Jordan. Joshua is about 83 years old, and when the final credits start to roll down the screen, Joshua, after leading the people to victory, is 110 years old, and he dies. And now the book of Joshua, it's, a, it's primarily a book about war, about battles and enemies, victory and conquest. And I'm sure that many of us remember hearing stories about Joshua when we were little kids growing up in Sunday school, and maybe we even sang that classic song, right? about Joshua and the battle of Jericho, right? Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. 
Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and the... All right. I thought I'd get some help on that. Way to leave a brother dying, all right? You're like, let's, let's just watch this guy struggle. This is pretty good. Waiting for Simon Cal. That was terrible. You sound like you should be on a, not even on a cruise ship, under the cruise ship. <laughs> well, after singing that song, you know, we would, maybe, maybe you did a craft, you played a little, and then you went and had some, some juice and those cookies that you could stick your finger through. Didn't you just love those? And you could bite around the little, little butter things. And it was a fun time. It, it was a fun story to us. But you know, there's a part of the story, the Battle of Jericho, that is usually left out. A part that most of us never heard about as little kids in Sunday school. We read in Joshua chapter 6, when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in and took the city. Usually it ended there. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men, women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. I understand it. As, as we read the story, especially chapter 7, uh, we come face to face with a very real and difficult tension that God is both terrifying and merciful, uh, that he hates evil and loves people, that he punishes sin and extends grace to the sinner. I mean, pause for a moment and and try to imagine the sights, the sounds, and the smells of that day. The violent, bloody carnage that took place as God's people killed every living thing in Jericho. I, I picture images like the ones I saw in the movie, the true story, the Hotel Rwanda, or, or images of the, of the Holocaust. And they're not pleasant images. And listen, if we think about it long enough, we begin to feel like we have discovered a secret about God, a dark side that people rarely see or try to pretend doesn't exist. And so what do we do with this tension of a terrifying but yet merciful God? Now, some people use this as the very reason that they totally have want nothing to do with God and nothing to do with Christianity whatsoever. Other people, other people, they, they simply reject the Old Testament God as a primitive, inferior being compared to the God of the New Testament. It's kind of like, you know, well, the Old Testament God, he had some serious anger issues, and during the intertestamental period, you know, that 400 years of silence, he got some counseling, he worked some things out, and when the New Testament comes on, out pops Jesus, a brand new God. And that's a convenient view uh, but it leaves you and I creating God in an image that's comfortable to us. And that's never a good thing. However, for those of us who continue to believe that the Old Testament God and the New Testament God are the very same person, well, we have some splendor to do, right? And when it comes to things like the carnage following the overflow of Jericho. And now, I, I have no illusions of grandeur here. I mean, I in no way think that I can answer all the issues surrounding this question. But I felt compelled to talk about at least a little. I mean, I didn't want to ignore it, right? Pretend that it wasn't there uh, uh, because it's part of the story. 
And, and it's part of the story that maybe, if you're like me, it's caused you many times to scratch your head trying to figure it out and, and try to wrap your brain around it. And so I wanted to at least say three things that, that may help resolve or at least a little understand this tension of a, of a terrifying yet merciful God, a, a God who sent his people to Jericho to take their land and to kill all the people, okay? Number one, the first thing I want to say is that wars in the Old Testament were an expression of God's judgment on the nation. Wars in the Old Testament were expression of God's judgment on the nation. Uh, about 650 years before the battle of Jericho, God entered into a covenant relationship with Abraham. He says, Abraham, you know what? I've chosen you, and you're, you're going to become the father of, of a great nation, and you're going to possess a great land. And then we read these words in Genesis chapter 15. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. And they'll be enslaved and mistreated there. That's Egypt. But I will punish that nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. And then we read this, verse 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. No, 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 Abraham, you can't come into this land yet. You can't settle yet. You're going to have to come back later in four generations, which was God's way of saying a, a really, really long time. Why? Because of the sins of the Amorites have not yet reached full measure. Now, now that phrase full measure indicates that God was giving these people, the Canaanites, both time and opportunity to repent and to change their ways. But our sin, during those 600 years, they only became more sinful and more ungodly. And their sin reached its full measure. I mean, it was an ungodly culture. It, it, it was a culture dominated by such things as incredible violence, incest, bestiality, institutionalized sexual abuse of women, unhindered sexual immorality. It, sexual immorality was just part of the culture. And that culture, being, you know, a, a farmer having sex with a temple prostitute was every bit as much a part of his job as farming as plowing a field. Sex was everywhere. Daughters just grew up into it. It's all they knew. And, and they even were so repulsive that they would take their children, their babies, and they would offer them in sacrifice to the god Moloch. Understand, they became so wicked, their sin became so severe that God decided he needed to deal with that sin and blot them out. And he used Israel to be an instrument of that judgment. Much like when, when, when God in Genesis 6, right, chapter 1 of the story, God looks at, at the wicked world. He says, man, this is messed up. And he says, I'm going to give you guys 120 years. You know, I'll contend with you for 120 years, and maybe during that time you'll straighten up and you'll change. But they didn't, and the flood came. Uh, a, a second thing, so the first thing to understand about wars in the Bible is that um, they were an expression of God's judgment on the nation. Number two, uh, the Canaanites need to be removed to firmly establish the worship of the one true God in the land. Okay. There was a lot riding on Israel being in the promised land, i.e. the coming of Messiah so that he could unleash grace throughout the world. And listen, there was no way that the worship of the one true God could take 
root, could be established, could survive in a culture that was so wicked and so corrupt. So God had to take extreme measures in order to protect his people, much like a surgeon may have to amputate part of the body in order to save the life of the person, in order to save the entire body. And the third thing to keep in mind when we read this is that God plays no favorites. God could and did use other nations to punish Israel for their sins. You see, sin may not be a big deal to us. It's a big deal to God. Such a big deal that Isaiah says that God, you know, God crushed. Isaiah says, it was your will to crush him. Sin is so bad and has to be dealt with in such a severe way that the Bible says that God, you know, God put, you didn't put Jesus on the cross. You couldn't do it. You're not strong enough, all right? Man could not put Jesus on the cross. Only God could. And sin is so severe that God crushed his own son to deal with it. All right? And so we see in Scripture, God didn't play favorites. You know, in 522 B.C., the sin of the northern kingdom had reached full measure. And God allowed the Assyrian Empire to come in and wipe out the northern kingdom to punish them for their sins. In 586 B.C., the sin of the southern kingdom, Judah, reached its full measure. I'm reading through Ezekiel right now. Oh, my gosh, the things they did. I mean, the idols set up in the temple. The sexual immorality taking place in the very house of God. Worshiping foreign gods on every street corner. You know, people by the hundreds worshiping false gods within the temple. No, God doesn't play favorites. And, you know, there's a pretty powerful example of this in chapter 5 of Joshua. <clears throat> I don't think it was in the story. I, I love this. You know, they crossed the Jordan. They're ready to, to take Jericho the next day. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I, I, I've now come. And then the next, we got the next part of that? Okay, then Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked, what message does my Lord have for his servant? Commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, for the place where you're standing is holy. And Joshua did so. I like that. Joshua, Joshua sees him, hey, are, are you on our side or their side? He says, I didn't, I didn't come here to take sides. I came here to take over. You know, I, I'm, I'm in charge. You know, understand, God will fight for his people, but God will also fight against his people. In chapter 7 of the story, uh, we see God fighting against a guy named Achan who sinned against God, right, after the battle of Jericho. And we also see God saving, right? We, we, we got a guy judged by God in, in chapter 7 of the story. And we got a prostitute saved by God, a Canaanite, because she surrendered to God, okay? And again, just three things to think about, maybe to put it in context. And I thought it was worthy of at least a brief discussion and, and hope it made sense. Maybe it helped a little bit to understand. It helped me out as I was thinking through it. Now back to chapter 7 of the story. And, and the way I, I, I want to spend our time remaining is I want to answer three questions. Why must there be battles? How can we ensure victory? And what choice do I have? But before we go there, I want to mention something pretty awesome that's 
premiering tonight on the History Channel. I've been a pastor for 21 plus years. I've never once promoted something for the History Channel. I got an email from a pastor of Live Church TV. If you use, you know, you version of the Bible, you know, their church created that, talking about how tonight at 8 p.m. it's a five to ten part miniseries about the Bible premiering on the History Channel. You know, um, and then I start, who's endorsed it? You know, because I haven't seen it yet, but, you know, Rick Warren um, has endorsed it, as well as Erwin McManus and a bunch of other guys have been involved in the project. They say it's going to be incredible. So I just want to encourage you guys, check it out. It's supposed to be well done. You know, uh, it's got the people, the lady from Touched by the Angel and the, the guy involved in the Survivor reality TV show. It's supposed to be really good and really leads to some great discussions. People you know may be watching this, and mark this down, I've never once promoted the History Channel, and, and so I haven't seen it, but a lot of people I respect say, hey, you need to check this out. That's tonight. All right, let's go. Now, why must there be battles? Take a deep breath. Some people try to say I talk fast. I don't think that's true. <laughs> I'm from the north, right? We talk fast up in the north, don't we? You know, I'm sure that God's people and Joshua's day may, may have asked or thought that question a lot during their 27 years of conflict, right? How come there always has to be battles? Well, one reason, I mean, this isn't rocket science because God's people have what? They got an enemy. They have an enemy. And the enemy that Joshua and his people were about to square off across the other side of the Jordan, they were a pretty formidable enemy. I mean, they had well-trained soldiers. They had weapons, fortified cities. I mean, Jericho had massive walls. It it had an inner wall that was 12 feet wide. They used to raise chariots on top of it, right? Uh, Separated by 15 feet, and then an outer wall that was 6 feet wide. And did I mention they had, like, giants? So, so, So why must there be battles? Because God's people have an enemy, and because, you're thinking, this is another simple one, because somebody else occupies the land. You see, God said, here's your land. Problem was, somebody's already there. And now, I know I've been, now, I know I've been saying the last few weeks that being God's people was never about geography. However, there was a very strategic reason why God wanted to launch the message of who he was and, and what he came to do from this 50 by 150 mile chunk of real estate just east of the Mediterranean Sea. If you look there, there's a map, and once again, I, I need to get Bill's thing. I forgot to get it again, okay? That's a map of Africa and Europe, and you can see the Mediterranean Sea, and just off to, to the, the right of that, you can see that small chunk of land, okay? Understand, this was a major trade route from Africa to Europe and back and forth. Because nobody would really ship anything across the Mediterranean Sea because of piracy. It wasn't until Rome built a strong enough navy and wiped them out. So everything went through that, that small piece of land. You got the sea you can't travel. To the west, you got the desert. Everybody went through there, and there were towns. Uh, there were water. There, there were roads. It was the quickest route. It was the most strategic piece of ground in the world at the time. Everybody had to pass through there. And when they did, they got to meet and encounter God's people. And they got to hear about the one true God. And so that's why that piece of land is so important. Now, why must there be battles? Because God's people have an enemy, because somebody else occupies the land. 
And listen, whether we want to admit it or not, wars, battles, and enemies did not come to an end at the close of the Old Testament era. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34, do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a what? But a sword. And Jesus said in John 10, 10, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full. You know, 14 are the most awesome and inspiring words in scriptures. I love those words, but in the very same sentence, right before Jesus said that, <laughs> in the very same sentence, he says this, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. You know, by all means, God intends life for us, but right now, that life is opposed Understand, the life God has for us doesn't just roll in on a room service tray. There's a thief. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. In other words, the offer is life, but we're going to have to fight for it. There's an enemy with a different agenda. Maybe you've noticed there seems to be something said against you. Understand, we are at war. Uh, there is an enemy who's constantly opposing the life to the full that Jesus won for us on a bloodstained cross. Yeah, there's a verse in chapter 12 of Revelation. Chapter 12 of Revelation is basically talking about you know, when Jesus decided to put on flesh and come to this earth, a great spiritual battle took place. Satan tried to stop him, got his butt kicked because he couldn't stop them, and he wasn't very happy about it. Realized, I can't do anything about Jesus anymore. He came. He died, he lived, and he conquered. But then it says this. He's not, then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commandments and hold fast to their testimony about Jesus. So, so wars didn't end. And the enemies declared war on anybody who loves Jesus. And by the way, when, when Jesus returns, he'll, he'll, he'll be riding, according to Revelation, 19, he'll be riding on a great war horse, right? He'll be armed and ready for battle. His robe will be dipped in blood, and on his robe and thigh will be written what was king of kings and lord of lords. Paul talked about in Ephesians. We won't read that. You know that, right? He said, you know, finally be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And he talks about this battle we're in. We sang about the armor. Didn't we sing about that? It's kind of crazy that we sing all these songs about war. We forget that we're in a war. C.S. Lewis said this, enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed in the skies and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Enemy-occupied territory, that is what this world is. You agree with that? I mean, look at the news, right? Look at your neighborhood. Look what's going on in this world today. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed in disguise and is calling us all to take part in a great campaign of sabotage. Why must there be battles? Why must we struggle so much? God's people have an enemy and someone else occupies the land. Okay? Then how can we ensure victory? And, and, and I think before I talk about how we can ensure victory, I need to define victory. And victory for the Israelites, for God's people in Joshua, 
day was, was conquering the land, winning the war, and established himself in the promised land as God's people. Victory for us, for Christians, for the church, is living the life that we're created to live, becoming the people that God wants us to be, living the life that God intends for us, a life that finds its greatest joy and satisfaction in God, a life where hope is living, a life where joy is unquenchable, a life where peace passes understanding, a life where love Conditional, unending, and never failing. A life where bondages are broken, captives are set free. A life where sin is defeated. A life where we are more than conquerors. A life where people see our good deeds and praise the Father in heaven. A life that is consumed with living in such a way that, that people see our lives see the, and see the sweetness of being in a relationship with God so that people surrender to him. That, that is some of the stuff that defines victory. Okay, so how do we ensure victory? The same way that God's people in chapter 7 of the story ensured victory. Number one, by, by, by obeying God's word. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night. So you be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. A few things about obedience. Obedience does not always make sense, right? It, it doesn't make sense to cross a river without a boat or a bridge, right? And did you notice that crossing the Jordan was different than crossing the Red Sea? And crossing the Jordan, you know, the waters didn't part until their feet got wet, Right? You know, it wasn't like the priests out in front, they had to step in. They had to, and I don't know how far they had to step and how deep it was, but they had to step into the raging sea, and then it parted. They couldn't wait on the sidelines. All right, Joshua, get, let's get, can you get the staff? No, no staff thing this time. Another thing about obedience, you know, about it not making sense, talk about a crazy plan. Before the battle begins, God says to Joshua, and I want you to pay attention to God's language here, to his grammar. Not his grandma, but, but, but his grammar. He, he says, then the Lord said to Joshua, see I have, what does he say? Delivered Jericho to your hands, along with its kings and fighting men. And Joshua's like, well, not really. I mean, like, uh, we're on this side of the wall, God, and we need to be on that side? We're not there yet. But God says, I have delivered. See, God speaks of what has not happened as if it already has. He uses past tense here even when the event didn't happen. And I love it. Understand, our God is so sovereign that if he says something is going to happen, it is a done deal. Get it? And aren't you glad that it is? And then God gives him the battle plan. He says, okay, here's how we're going to do this thing, Joshua. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them, sound the long blast on the trumpets. Have all the people give a loud shout. Then the walls of the city collapse and all the people will go straight up, every man in. And Joshua's like, uh-huh. Okay, God, 
I mean, we're talking about an experienced general. And I bet you Joshua had thought about this before God's plans, right? I think he thought about it. He had his own ideas of how to win the victory, thinking, you know what? Well, maybe if we just do it this way and and we work this and we plan it this way, maybe, just maybe, we could take the city. And I guarantee in Joshua's plans were never the words marching band, right? (laughs) You know, he never said, we're going to have a marching band. That's how we're going to do this. No. But God says, here's what we're going to do. It didn't make sense. And by the way, when the walls fell, who got the glory, God or the marching band? God got the glory. And nothing about obedience, it's not always comfortable, is it? Chapter 5, they just crossed the Jordan River, ready to take the city. And the summary notes in the story page 90, 91, it talks about something that God's people had to do, had the men had to do before they got to go and, and fight. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives, get some rock, Make them as sharp as you can and circumcise all the guys. It's like, okay, not a scalpel, like no anesthesia, a rock. Not very comfortable obedience sometimes, is it? Something had to be cut away. Maybe in your life, something has to be cut away, right? In order for you to obey God, a relationship, an activity, a behavior, an attitude. And finally, obedience is never optional. And listen, talking about obedience and understanding obedience is not the same thing as obedience, right? Getting the pop quiz right, it's not the same thing. Another way we ensure victory is by seeking God's guidance and direction. And how do we do this? Through prayer, right? Coming to God's presence. After battle Jericho, what did God's people not do before the next battle? They didn't seek God's guidance. And what was the result? Big smackdown, right? They're devastated. First time they actually fight on their own, right, and they lose. Uh, Another way we ensure victory is by turning our hearts away from all the idols and false gods in our life. God said, you must have no other gods before me. A few weeks ago in the service when we talked about that, as we said chapter 5 of the story, I said, well, what are some gods that people in our world have? And they said, money. Things, jobs, sex, family, relationships, recreation. See, none of those things can become more important than God is. You know, Moses in Deuteronomy 30, he's giving his farewell speech. He tells the people about how if they obey God in this new land, things are going to be totally awesome. They're going to increase in number. They're going to live great lives because God is blessing them. And then Moses says this, but if your hearts turn away and, and you're not obedient, And if you're drawn away to bow down to other gods and worship them, I declare to you this day that you will certainly be destroyed. You'll not live long in the land you're crossing the Jordan to enter and possess. A guy named Os Guinness wrote a book called No God But God, Breaking with the Idols of Our Age. And he said this, Idolatry is huge in the Bible, dominant in our personal lives, and irrelevant in our own mistaken estimations. I don't have any gods. I'm not worshiping anything. Really. Uh, This week I started reading the following book written by Kyle Eidemann, the author of Not a Fan, called Gods at War. Highly recommend it with a caution. It will convict you. It will challenge you. 
and ultimately it will change you. Now, Cal says this in the book, one of the quotes in the introduction. Idolatry is the number one issue in the Bible. The gods are at war, and their strength is not to be underestimated. These gods are at war for the throne of your heart, and much is at stake. Everything about me, everything I do, every relationship I have, everything I hope or dream or wish to become depends upon what God wins this war. You see, not only did wars not end in the first century, neither did idol worship and having false gods, having things that we pursue more than God. Another way we ensure victory is by shifting from our smallness, shifting our focus from our smallness to God's bigness. The first time, right, when these people saw these cities, what did they say? We're grasshoppers. We can't do this. Forty years later, what are the people saying? Forty years later, they have strength and courage. And you know why? I think it's because they changed their focus from their smallness to God's bigness. Listen, I don't know anything that will have a greater impact on your life and on mine than when we take our eyes off our smallness and put it on God's bigness. Understand, the question is, Not how big am I compared to what I am facing. The question is, how big is God? And listen, this new generation, they are filled with courage and strength, not because the circumstances have changed, because it didn't. Not because things were easier. It was probably even harder. But because they changed their focus. You know, I'm convinced that God wants our story to be about his bigness about how he's bigger than our problems, bigger than our doubts, bigger than our fears, bigger than our regrets, bigger than our sin, bigger than our shame, bigger than our guilt, about how he's bigger than anything. You know, Isaiah chapter 40 really helps with the bigness of God. He used poetic language, Isaiah does, and he says this in Isaiah 40, verse 12. He, he says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? You know, I I have some water here. I tried this. I can get about a teaspoon of water and still leaking in the hollow of my hand. God pours some water in his hand, dumps it out, Atlantic Ocean, Pacific Ocean, Indian Ocean. Isaiah says, who has, with the breath of his hand, from his pinky to his thumb, measured out the heavens? I measure from my pinky to my thumb, and it's about nine inches. The closest star to us is 24 trillion miles away, and God's like, hey, let me, let me measure that out for you. Maple Grove, imagine what will happen if whenever we're in a battle, if we took our eyes off our smallness, and put them on God's bigness. If we took our eyes off the thing, off the wall, off the giant that is in our way, and we remember how big our God is. Understand, this is how we become strong and courageous, by obeying God's word, by seeking his guidance, by shifting our focus from his, from our smallness to his bigness, by turning away from false gods, and by allowing God's presence to overwhelm the lies of the enemy. On Friday, I put the following posts on my Facebook. 
working on my message, I need your help. Could you give me a five-word sentence that represents a lie that you have believed that has robbed your story of strength and courage? Here's a few of those. You messed up too much. It's too late for you. You will just fail again. Your failure disqualifies your service. God doesn't really want you. Why would he love you? Just this once won't matter. Go ahead, you deserve it. No one cares about you. Not worthy of God's love. You're on your own. There's something wrong with you. God is done with you. I can do it myself. You can't make a difference. I'm responsible for the outcomes. You're failing as a dad. You're failing as a mom. You're failing as a husband. You're failing as a wife. You'll never conquer that sin. No one will ever know. It's too late to try. I mean, just five words came so quickly to so many people about things that have lies that have robbed them of their strength and their courage. And I, I want to give you five new words to replace all the lies of the enemy. In Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, God says this. Five new words. I will be with you. I will be with you. This morning, let God's presence overwhelm all the lies of the enemy. And you know what? It says that before the walls fell down, it says that God's people shouted. It doesn't say what they shouted. I have an idea. You know what I think they shouted? The Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. Stand up and let's shout that together. On three. One, two, three. The Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. Amen. And he is. He is. How do we ensure victory? By obeying God's word, seeking God's guidance, turning our hearts away from idols, shifting our focus, allowing God's presence to overwhelm the lies of the enemy. And the last question I want to answer today is what choice do we have? Be quick, but maybe the, but the most important one. The book of Joshua is about to close. They're getting ready to roll the final credits down the screen. Joshua is 110 years old. He's fought many battles, many wars. He, ha- he has the scars to prove. He's seen God do great and miraculous things. He's been a leader of these people for about 67 years, and he knows his time is short. And he stands before the people. I mean, can you see him standing there? And he, he's strong and powerful, and they love this man. They follow this man. And, and he clears his throat. <clears> throat> he looks at them, maybe a tear coming down his eye, because he knows, you know what, I, I may not get to talk to these people ever again. And they wait expecting words. And he reminds them of all the great things that God has done, all, all the things that God has brought them through. He reminds them that, you know what, God, it, it wasn't with, with bows or swords that we won this land. It was with God. And then he says this. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, 
whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And I want to tell you, Thirty four hundred years later, we don't get to opt out of this. Oh, this no, I don't have I was never in Egypt. I can't even spell Euphrates. We have gods. We have things we put before God. And there's no choice but to choose. You think, well, I'm just not going to choose. Well, you already did. We're already choosing. And you know, it said that battle begins, and I talk about there always being war. But there is one battle that can end today. And that's your battle, my battle with God. And it ends with one word. Surrender. Surrender. And we're going to sing a song you guys know. And I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. And you know. You know if there's something you put before God. It could be your job, your career, your money, your investments, a relationship, your retirement. It could be pleasure. It could be, I don't know what it is. You know what it is. You know what it is you wake up thinking about, go to bed thinking about. If we went on your computer, we'd see the things you searched the most for things you pursued, the things you dream about. I don't know. You know yours, I know mine. You know, but today, a battle can end. Our battle was striving with the God of the universe, and we can surrender to him. Would you stand? And I'm going to pray, and we're going to sing this song. Father God, we love you, and we thank you. And God, I just ask that right now, each of us right now, in some way, we can forget that there's anybody else in this room. And God, that maybe we, we can that we, we, we can feel the desert sand between our toes and, and we can see this 110-year-old warrior looking at hundreds of thousands of people that he loves who even after all this time, they're still clinging on to things. And Joshua says, you know what? If, if serving God, if that's not really something you want to do, then just yeah, choose what you're going to serve. And God, I pray that right now we surrender that we renew our commitment to serve and follow and pursue and chase after you alone. And Holy Spirit, just move and speak to us as we sing. May not just be words, may be worship. Amen.